Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On today's show, actor Zachary Quinto. The Star Trek and So Notorious star talks about how the pandemic has changed his outlook on life. This whole year for me, in so many ways, has been about divesting myself of the things that I used as measurements of my own sort of success externally. This whole year for me has been a real internal deep dive for which I'm deeply grateful. And so I emerge from it with less concern or care for presentation and much more attention and openness to experience and expression. Looking back on his public coming out nearly a decade later. My coming out was only planned by me. I knew that I was going to do it, but I didn't tell anybody. I told no one in my personal or professional life. And that was really important for me to do it that way. I didn't want to have the expectation or the pressure or even the knowledge of other people whose opinions I both value and could potentially be influenced by informing that experience. Rumors of him reprising his role as Spock in an upcoming Star Trek film. There's been so many, you know, Quentin Tarantino's gonna write and direct the next Star Trek movie. And then there was one that, you know, Chris Hemsworth was gonna be in. And then, I mean, there's so many versions of what could or couldn't happen out there. There's no way to really tell if or when anything might actually come back around. But I do know I would love to do it again. What sobriety has taught him for me, my journey in sobriety has, has really taught me that actually it is in the surrender that the power exists and the freedom exists because control is a, a kind of atrophy. The need for control is a kind of uh, rigidity. And what comes with surrender is a kind of expansion and a kind of freedom that, that I never knew when I was so afraid of what it looked like. That plus Zach answers questions from Sarah Paulson and Charlie Carver about breastfeeding and depravity. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to the season two finale of Shut Up Evan, uh, which is generally a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am, have always been, and will continue to be Evan Ross Katz. I'm joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Matt, we have reached the end of the road. Not for you and I, and not for Shut Up Evan, but for season two of Shut Up Evan. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Uh, it's wild to me how fast this time has gone. 
Like, I, I mean, comically, and I think we mentioned this in the early days of the pod, you and I met via phone because I was displaced into a hotel for a month because my apartment mm. had burned down and got waterlogged. And, like, so much has happened over the last year, not just personally for me, but, like, just in the pandemic and, like, with our government and all sorts of things. And, like, in all that time, with all that craziness, we still made an incredible season of podcasting. And I think that's something to be commended. I agree. I mean, I think that, as you said, it was there was a lot going on in the world, and that was both challenging in terms of like the actual, just like making the physical making of the podcast, but also sort of in how we approached uh, our guests and and the topics that we talked about, and sort of deciding quite often how much we, you know, it's a melancholic time for a lot of people, obviously to varying degrees depending on their situation. But I, I, I think it's fair to say that like the last year has not been wonderful for many people and so it definitely was a conscious decision in terms of the discussions that we have up top here and in the interviews themselves how much we wanted to focus on the melancholy how much we wanted to talk about um, things and I think that we chose often to talk about them to an extent we didn't want to ignore what was going on but we also wanted to provide an alternative for people looking to sign up you know for an hour where their mind was not stuck in um the many places that our minds were forced to be stuck in this past year or that we chose to stick them in because you know we felt for a long time we had ignored things that where our minds should be so yeah i am completely aligned when you look back on this 18 episodes do you have any highlights for you Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. The easiest and first highlight will always be Retta, just because it's Retta. Like that was, and that for me was the first big interview we did where it was someone I knew and was a big fan of already and like had this legacy, this legend. But the highlight of that episode is that I found out that myself and Retta enjoy our coffee identically. Mm, We like Pete's. It is important. We like Pete's. We like a little bit of hazelnut creamer. That's it. Just nice and simple, you know, mm. and, and I appreciate that. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Um, I got to know a lot of really incredible people. A highlight will always be Jimbo for me because I knew nothing about Jimbo going to that interview. And you sent me a bunch of stuff and then I researched a bunch of stuff and like was just floored by the amount of just things that were out there in the world and and became enamored with their work and you know, I think, you know, a big highlight was the education this podcast gave me. You know, I know a lot about queer and gay culture as I am a part of it, but like there are still blind spots. We all have blind spots. And I got to meet some really incredible people who made me rethink a lot of things too and just like feel better about myself, feel more confident, uh, analyze how to engage. And then I think also one of the peak ones was the one we did with Tavi just because it was like peak Jewishness. Which felt so good. Like, and it's not like we we don't, you know, you try and incorporate the Jewish experience, especially when the guest is Jewish, because we're both Jewish. But like, that felt really good to talk about B'nai mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs. Like, it's just because that's a thing that's very specific to the Jewish experience. And even if you're not Jewish, a kid, a friend of yours may have come to one of those kinds of parties. But like, to talk about themes and stuff, where if we brought that up in like a random conversation with people who've never had or been to one, they'd be like, I don't understand theme. Absolutely. What are you talking? And like, so that was really cool and fun. Um, Yeah, I think that, and it's just been awesome getting to know you. You know, you came on my podcast this year, which was really great. I'm excited to announce, though it'll be many weeks after this airs, Alden's coming on my interview podcast as oh, well. Oh, that's so fab. I love that. Yeah, um, CPOV Autographs. It's now transitioned to a new name on a new network. But Alden, after talking about the road was sexual with you here, I reached out and was like, hey, do you want 
to promote Kickstarter on my show. Do you want to talk? And we had a great hour-long chat about sci-fi and its influences, about this show. It was really great. We celebrate you a little bit on that show, which is always fun. I love that. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that, you know, I think I also have a lot of ideas of what to do next, too. I think next season I want, I want us to be able to get ahead more, bank more episodes, you know, our listeners know that we scrambled a little bit a couple times this season just to make sure things ran smoothly for them. And I'm very much looking forward to learning from those mistakes, I guess we could call it. Yeah, there were mistakes. Yeah, no, totally. And like being able to streamline that kind of stuff. Banking guests. I mean, the listeners don't know this yet, but we already know who our first guest next season's going to be. And we have some ideas for next season of other like up top stuff. And so like I'm excited to grow that also, especially. And I think the, the biggest thing before I pass it to you is I'm very excited to actually share our meal with you and like have lunch together and like hang out. <laughs> a thing we couldn't do in the last year. It's so bizarre to be in such <laughs> constant contact with a person who you've never met but I mean it's a wonderful thing because I do feel like we know each other but yes I I, I agree that meeting and meeting lol seeing one <laughs> another in person but you know meeting for the first time um, I'm looking forward to that as well but uh tell me as the person this podcast belongs to I know it's our podcast I know but as the figurehead of this show well how has it been for you this year like what are some of your highlights maybe some of the things that you want to work on yeah, about the podcast or about myself, because <laughs> both, both both lists are long. Um, it's been really incredible. It has been a tremendous amount of work. And on the one hand, because we went every other week for this season, I anticipated that that would make things a lot easier. Um, I anticipated incorrectly. Um, as you mentioned, yes, there was a lot of scrambling. And I think that I've learned that you know, I've said this before, I think, on the podcast, but I have a certain taste level that I really try and meet at all times. And I think as a result of that, I can sometimes make things more difficult than they need to be. It's not to say that it's not worthwhile, but I think, you know, a for instance would be, I just spend so much time researching my guests. And I know, for instance, like with the Sunny Hostin interview, she had the new book coming out that I read, but I was thinking I should go back and reread her other book. And I'm like dog tagging certain pages. And then I found myself watching, I did like watch this hour and a half long interview that she did with Ronan Farrow. And all of this was helpful. And I think it made for a better interview. I don't regret doing it. It's part of what I think uh, I bring to the table, but it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And so it's one thing that I am hoping to just like better finesse in terms of how to consolidate certain aspects of the process. But at the same time, I really enjoy getting to know my guests in such a way and really feeling like, I don't know, I, I, I will give a, so a, a little side note, but I think it relates to this. So I interviewed Cynthia Arrivo uh, earlier this week because she is going to be included in the Buffy book. She is a major Buffy fan. And so I have a bunch of celebrity fans, not all of whom I can disclose, but this will be one I will disclose. And I sent her a voice memo. Thank you afterwards. Just being like, Thank you so much. Um, I, I just can't believe that you would take the time to a half an hour out of your very busy Emmy, Grammy, and Tony award-winning life to talk about <laughs> Buffy. And she sent me a voice memo back. This was yesterday saying, thank you for allowing me to talk about an aspect of who I am that I'm not often able to talk about. And I don't think that was just in talking about Buffy. I think that were, yeah. was some of the themes that came out as a result of our conversation around Buffy. And that is like the aspect of this podcast and an interview in general that brings me the most joy. And I think that there have been multiple times on this podcast in which 
I perceived, I'm not always saying it's, it's this way, but I perceived that the guest was offering up a part of themselves that they either previously didn't feel compelled to bring to the table, hadn't been, hadn't had the opportunity to, uh, you know, whatever the alchemy may be. I really do feel like there were a couple times that we did something great. And I also feel to name a specific episode, the Anna Ferris one was really exciting for me as an interviewer because, you know, I mentioned those meticulous notes and I had, you know, you see my question yeah. doc, I have everything laid out, but I really try and be really, really present in the moment. And so I always kind of view the question doc as like the roadmap and I'm always willing to off-road. And I felt like this kind of energy with the Anna interview in which I felt really off road, but always in control of the interview. And as someone who like has always really like loved the art form of the interview, there were a couple times this season when I really, it clicked in for me in such a way and it felt really exciting. And I felt like I was really like vibing with the guests. And um, yeah, so I would say overall, like I just, I enjoyed this, the, the stresses of it all are always worth it. I think that like right now I'm like balancing. I have my job at Netflix. I have the, I write the pa- column for paper magazine. I have the book. I have this. I'm, I balance a lot, but it's never, it never, it's hard work, but it's never, it always feels worthwhile. I'm not, I, I, I very, to be honest with you, I'm very seldom stressed um, just because, you know, I can, I'm getting to write a book about Buffy. I'm getting yeah. to interview Cynthia Erivo and talk about Buffy. There's and, and even with this podcast, it's like I'm getting to interview these fabulous people and I'm afforded this platform in which I can speak uh, about things that I feel and, and pick the topics that I, I want to talk about. So I really am proud. To your point, we have have uh we have that amazing guest for the premiere season three but i also have several other guests lined up maybe one that was mentioned earlier um but there are some really exciting guests and i look forward to to your point sort of like finessing some aspects of the show i'm hopeful about maybe going back to weekly but in some kind of new format i mean there's lots of tbd but we will be back. I always love a season three. It's my favorite season of Buffy. Um, I was going to say it's my favorite season of Sex in the City. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Sarah Michelle Gellar is on season three of Sex in the City. So it, it tracks. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I'm really excited. And and I just want to say, like, briefly, uh, I want to give a shout out to Ryan Killian Krauss, our associate yes. producer, for all of his beyond meticulous edits. And uh, Sean Ross, who does our social, the great mm-hmm. Sean Ross. Um Keep your eyes out for uh, a little new project from Sean and I this summer that is Survivor themed um, that will be in your earwaves coming soon. Um, But I also just want to say it's like we... we do not have uh, a ton of ad sales. We do, we, this is just a very like, I was going to say low lift. It's the opposite of low lift. It's just, <laughs> there's not a lot of people that touch this podcast. It's basically Matt, Ryan, myself, and Sean. And it takes a lot of work. There's a lot of things that people don't know about. And I'm just really appreciative for having this team come together. And like you said, it's like, I know I get to be the figurehead, but it really does feel like this like small family. And, Sometimes I feel like no one listens to the podcast because I honestly, and you know, I don't really look at the numbers very often, but I've been getting a lot of DMs lately and because it used to be for a while, I was like, oh, I love your Instagram. And I just, I didn't really know what to say to that because I, I, 
to me, I don't, Instagram's not like my work right. per se. Now it kind of, I mean, it's, yeah. But I've been getting a lot of comments lately about people just saying, I listen to the podcast. And that's really, really meaningful because I, I don't know, I mean, for all the obvious reasons, but it's really exciting to feel like we've cultivated an audience of people that come and they enjoy the topics that we're speaking to. And um, that's, yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm just very touched and glad to be doing this. And like, yeah, it's a lot of work, but like, why not? Like, like, you know, it's like, it's fun to have a platform that in which I can, you know, something like the Colton Underwood news comes out. And I, I remember my first instinct, if this was 2019, I would have been like, I'm going to pitch a story. But now I'm kind of like, I don't often or always have a story to pitch. It's more like I want to meditate on things. Yeah. And so one topic I did want to bring up kind of like to close out the season is I kind of made the decision to kind of step back from Twitter uh, last week. I'm going to, you know, we'll see how long this holds, but I'm glad I'm saying it on here because I want accountability. But I think I'm going to take probably like the summer off from the platform. And I kind of wanted to talk about like briefly why that is, because I think, and this is less, it may be, perhaps it is self-indulgent, but I don't mean it as such. But I kind of think that there is a there there that I'm trying to get at about sort of like my lack of enjoyment specifically with Twitter and and maybe with social media in general. And the reason why I think this is a good platform to do so is because, you know, a listener, you heard our interview with Anna in which we talked at length about her relationship with social media. It's a subject that we speak about at length in this interview you're going to listen to with Zach. And I think it's been prevalent in a lot of our conversations, specifically with famous people, but I think that a lot of us uh, have social media fatigue specifically from the last year. And even lately, I have been getting a ton of uh, messages from people. Or even today, I posted this. Um, Monica Lewinsky did like a funny tweet and I, and I posted about it. And in the comments, someone was like, this is really funny, but I would love to see you and Monica uh, posting about what's going on right now in Israel. And I, I've just, and this reminded me of like something we said, we talked about earlier in the podcast when I posted uh, about Shania Twain. It was like, she posted a funny tweet and I posted it and someone was like, oh, don't you know that like she once said that she would support Donald Trump. Um, and and I just, I, I, kind of, I kind of think that there is some sort of there there. So for me, this really came to a head, uh, I think this was like last week, what is time, Um, when some gay uh, tweeted saying that he thought hairy chests were disgusting, and he said, ick, exclamation point. He deleted the tweet shortly thereafter, and it became sort of like this big moment where tons of gay people men on Twitter uh, started posting pictures of their hairy chest as a sort of like take back the night, if you will. And more often than not, uh, if you're someone that's comfortable posting a shirtless photograph of yourself, you probably feel like you look really good and you probably do look really good. And so there's just this level of vanity there. And over quickly, it became a bunch of really conventionally good looking people with six packs, uh, posting shirtless pictures and getting a ton of likes and getting a ton of attention. And quickly, I just was like, what is the fucking point? And so he like, I don't know if I said it, but he deleted the tweet shortly thereafter. But I'm just kind of watching this discourse play out in which it's kind of like people pretending to feel like they were under attack and feeling like they needed to like fight back only as a means to sort of like reaffirm their own hotness because Twitter, I think more than any platform is 
I think that it, 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 it really favors a hot random person. Like it's just, there's something about when a, a hot body pops up on, and I use air quotes cause I mean, hot is not, not objective here. But I think when a good-looking person is on Twitter, it, it's easy for that po- that picture to go viral just because of the nature of people on Twitter, especially, and like in life, like looking at good-looking people. But there was just something about watching the discourse play out and the way that it seemed as though people were positing it as some sort of like, I'm going to show them that like Harry Chess are hot. It's like, had this been something about stretch marks perhaps, or something that there's some sort of stigma actually around, then I could have gotten behind it. But it's like, I guess what this all comes down to is no one is saying that Harry Chests aren't hot. Some people might think that Harry, some people might think that Harry Chests like are not for them, but I'm just saying like, the ubiquitous, like ubiquitously, hairy chests are seen as attractive. And if you don't feel that way, okay. You know, I, I'm the Whoopi Goldberg on the View meme. The, uh, okay. Um, so I, I guess that was just one of those instances of like, I felt like people were earnestly responding to trolling in such a way um, that I just became really exasperated by it. And I guess over time, I just kind of felt like, I guess I'm starting to feel like with Twitter, I don't really know, uh, I don't really know what I want to say anymore. I I feel like everyone kind of says the same 10 things. And I'm not trying to convey this in a way that's like, well, over on Instagram, I'm just offering up like such keen insights. That's not it at all. But I feel like there's more room for deeper conversations But I also feel, and this is a problem across all social media, I think that there's a lot of people wanting to see the worst in people. I posted something um, earlier this week, or this will be last week by the time you're hearing this. It was a side-by-side of Glenn Close at the 101 Dalmatians premiere in 1996 and Emma Stone at the the, the premiere of her new film, Cruella. Glenn Close is dressed to the nines and she's dressed up as Cruella at the premiere. Emma Stone is wearing Louis Vuitton. It's a very simple sort of just, it's the kind of look we'll never think about again. And I was just kind of making the comparison that I missed the time in which actors really, you know, I I would convey it as sort of understood the assignment and and showed up for a premiere, you know, looking grand. And a lot of people inferred that I was being misogynistic. Um, They kept bringing up the fact that Emma Stone had just had a baby and that they kind of viewed it as that I was attacking Emma Stone. I love Emma Stone, by the way. Um, Easy A is like canonically like one of the most important films of of my 20s. Um, But more than anything, I just was surprised that people were reading into that in such a way. Now, I have to give people the benefit of the doubt in the sense that like just it's I can't say like just because I meant it a certain way and people didn't didn't it didn't take it the way I meant it necessarily means that, you know, I'm right there wrong. It's not really about that. I guess it just came down to the fact that I was just, I'm constantly dismayed with the way that I feel like people try and receive things to be, find find awfulness where there's not awfulness, right? That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say here. So sort of that, like the same thing with the Shania Twain, the thing of like, well, she went over Trump. It's like, everyone is, not everyone, a lot of people are really going to disappoint you. We've talked about that at great length about how many actors, we've, you know, we talked with Ellen and with Chris Pratt. If you invest in these people, they will disappoint you. That's been a big theme of the pod. And I just feel like I sense so often people wanting to get mad about things. And um, I just don't really, I think that I, there was a time in which I think I was someone who was that person. 
And I think, I don't know if it's age, I don't know if it's, it's exasperation, but I no longer feel as inclined to just, things just don't make me as angry anymore. And if they do, you know, as this relates to the Israel-Palestine conflict right now, I've gotten a lot of uh, vocal uh, people in my inbox wanting me to say something um, on my social media. And I just have nothing to add to that conversation on social media. I... I will be so honest with you. I don't know enough. I have done my best to learn, but it's also really difficult to learn about the Israeli-Palestine conflict without bias. Um, That's not to say I'm not trying and will not continue to try. I just don't have anything to add. I and I I think I guess sorry, but one like to sort of put a button on this. I feel like there's this need, and I get it because I feel this need quite often to speak about everything that's happening because you see a lot of people doing it. It's like why I've started seeing these blue squares going around on Instagram today. Which, by the way, I'm sorry, this might sound rude. I just like had a really strong reaction to it. I I just, I don't know. I just was like, what is this doing? What is the point? Um, But I guess it's, when it comes down to it, it's like, I know Buffy. I know Survivor. I know Drag Race. I know Housewives. These are the areas that I am an expert on. This is why I am a completist. This is why I feel like I can speak about these things with authority. The reason I have the guests on this show that I have is because I feel like I... I'm keen to the things that they are putting out to speak about, uh, to speak with them about it. When we had Brian Derrick on earlier this season and we talked about politics, the reason why we had him on, and I think I was explicit about this, was because there was a lot I didn't know. And so the purpose of that interview was to get information from him. But just because I am Jewish does not make me an expert on Judaism. It also doesn't mean that I'm going to just be like reposting posts from Jews because let me tell you, there are a lot of Jews out there in which I am not aligned with them in terms of their way of thinking. So I don't want this to be like a conversation about Israel, Palestine, (laughs) but this is to say that I just feel like there's a lot of conversations happening and I think that there was a time that I felt really compelled to get in the mix. And I think that one thing that's happening, and again, age, exhaustion, the time we're living in, I'm not sure, but I feel more compelled to to stop and think about things. And I try really hard not to be reactive um, and to really take time. It's why so often when we do these up tops, I will like script them out so much because I get fearful of like going off the cuff. Not of what I'll say, but I guess I just am really conscious of like, you know, for instance, we had Megan, I asked Megan McCain to ask Sonny Hostin a question for that episode. And I got a ton of pushback from people being like, why are you talking to Megan McCain? And like, I'm not friends with Megan McCain, but we are friendly. I talk to her. I don't agree with her uh, political beliefs. I don't believe, uh, agree with a lot of her ideological beliefs, but I talk to her. She is the co-host of The View. It's my favorite television show. I'm able to compartmentalize. So I don't know. Do you ever feel that, that, that exhaustion that I'm speaking to? Yeah, completely. Um, I last right before the pandemic last February. What is time anymore? Um, right. 
I uh, stopped using Facebook. I used to use Facebook for everything as much as my other social media, and then I kind of shuttered it. I still have it for all of the pages for my podcasts and my personal page, but like I don't, I haven't posted on Facebook in over a year. I only check it like once a week just to make sure I'm not missing anything from like a family member. Uh, and my mental health improved. I just felt overwhelmed by the relentless negativity on Facebook back then. And now with Twitter, I'm starting to feel the same thing. Twitter is my primary social platform. If you follow any of my podcasts or even here, that's the platform I prefer to engage with. But that said, I absolutely see what you're talking about. And there's been, I, I mean, we don't want to get into Israel-Palestine, but like that that's the loudest outcry right now. And rightfully so, right? This is a terrible thing that's happening. There's a lot of things going on and people want to hear what others say. But there's this also important thing that I've seen a few of my friends say that I think is important here to look at. Um, when you're frustrated or when you're overwhelmed by this, you don't always have to reply to a tweet and you mm -hmm. definitely don't always have to tweet. Like there are people demanding responses from certain people and if it's represent representatives of our government, if it's important like large businesses that have control in the world and in the country, these are important people to direct those you must say something mentalities to. But small individuals you don't always have to tweet. You don't always have to reply. I learned this ver very much with the BLM movement and with, with other things going on in this country specifically. Just because I want to support them, just because I want to make the world a better place doesn't mean I have to tweet or I have to reply. You can boost or you can just learn. You know, it's okay to just take in the information. And I think what you're saying is really important, not just with what's going on now, but just in general. And it's been hard the last few weeks, especially on Twitter, because of all of the horrible things that we've seen that have been happening. But you're right. When it comes to like a person trolling on purpose and engaging, you don't have to. And probably you shouldn't because then you can you can just think. You can take a reprieve. Right. You can get off. I, Sarah and I, my spouse, uh, the incredible Sarah Storm, had friends over for the first time since the pandemic started. We were all vaccinated, hanging out at the apartment, and I didn't check Twitter all day. And then I didn't feel obliged to really check it that much before I went to bed. And it was kind of freeing. Now, did I check it a bunch today? Sure. But, like, giving yourself those moments of solace are important. And I think you taking time off from a platform that's giving you anxiety and frustration makes complete sense and more people should do it. And also I appreciate that you're not like, I'm going to tell like, you're saying it here because it's important for our listeners to relate and to know, but you're also not going to go on Twitter and go, I'm disappearing. Farewell. Right, 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 right. Because that's well, a whole different thing. It is, but also because I'm not, I'm not, uh, what's it called? I'm not going on. I'm not closing down my Twitter in any way because yeah. really what the goal here rather to what you're saying is it's just that I no longer want to be the main character that I'm not saying I'm the main character of Twitter. I'm saying that I function in a way because I go on Twitter and it's like I put out my tweets. I operate as a main character. And what I'm saying is I'm trying to change the way I use it to be much more of an observer mm -hmm. because I get a lot out of Twitter. I, there are so many components of it that I like. But I know that for me, seeing a bunch of cis white gay guys partying in Fire Island, which I recognize that I am the one that chose to follow these people, mind you. I'm not, right. there's no blame here. I'm saying that that doesn't, that makes me feel a certain way with right now where in my life where, uh, to quote Valerie Cherish, I don't want to see that. And I, recognizing the fact that I have long chosen to see that. I'm trying to sort of change my ways. The other thing I just want to add before we go, and like this is the difficult thing to talk about in that it's like I I 
it's been a, it's been a rather transformative year for me in the sense of becoming a more public figure. Right. And I cringe at the very notion of it, of <laughs> speaking about this because it feels both elitist and egotistical. But and yet it, it very much has changed the way I think about my professional self. And, and sure. you know, this is a job, this podcast right here. Absolutely. So please understand I'm I am trying my best to untangle self uh from the personal in this conversation. Um but in that sense, there's a lot of times when I say something with the understanding of saying it to air quotes my people, to people that have a similar sense of humor that I do, to people that have a uh, similar outlook that I have, to people that are a certain age that, you know, so for instance, I, I'll give you a, an example. Like I did one of my posts the other day being like, who is this Olivia Rodrigo person? who I now know who she is, by the way. I've educated myself. I love driver's license, but I really love deja vu. But that's an example of, it's just something I had not heard of her. And I got all these messages from people being like, oh, Evan, you're being so shady. I wasn't being shady. I hadn't heard of her. Little did I know she is an absolute phenomenon. I recommend people check out Popcast from the New York Times did a deep dive on her, which I found really, really fascinating. Anyway, but this just to say that one of the things that I'm learning about and I'm constantly learning, please, like if you take nothing away, I'm always trying to, to take in the feedback and consider it. But when the platform gets larger, so in my world, it's like I made my uh, the side-by-side of the Glenn Close and the, the um, Emma Stone thing thinking, oh, my people, this is so the kind of thing that people that like me would, would get. Right. But I'm trying to recognize that there are a lot of people that don't get that and that's, that's not their fault or my fault. Right. But it's like I'm. You open up for a lot more criticism. I posted an old tweet of Amanda Bynes's where she said I look terrible, and then two seconds later followed it up with No, I look amazing. And people were like, Evan, you're making you're making you're joking about someone's mental health. And I was like, I'm just celebrating what I think is a very iconic tweet. But I have a a group of people who you know feel that way. Um. So yes. So I I, I honestly this is. I'm just trying to navigate it a little more and try and be, I, I always try and be thoughtful, but I always try and, you know, take on the feedback and I don't know. So I'm curious to hear from people sort of like, has their relationship changed with social media at all? And in terms of specifically sort of wanting to be less of the main character, because I think one thing that differentiates this podcast from so much of the other work I do, it's like I'm writing this Buffy book right now, which has it has the the lens is through me i should say but like the book is not about me by any means the me that i bring is sort of the the type of questions that i ask and that's where i bring the me in whereas this podcast specifically this up top really gives me the opportunity to sound off in ways that i don't really often have and it's a great thing it's also quite scary because you know you'll have people that the soundbite that they'll take away will be evan likes megan mccain right? right and Megan McCain is associated with X, Y, and Z thing that there, and and that's what it becomes because people choose to see it that way. And I guess one thing I'm always trying to recognize is like they have the right to see it that way, right? So it's like um, it's just sort of about managing the expectation. For me, the solution is not necessarily to log off because um, I just don't think that's realistic. That's I, I'm a pop culture fiend, <laughs> but I think it's to change my own relationship. And I think one of the reasons to wrap this up, one of the reasons why I have fallen so deep in love with Survivor over the last year. You probably never heard me talk about it. It's the show I've been watching. Um, but part of, one of the reasons why is because I found this micro community, kind of actually macro in a lot of senses, but I found this community 
of Survivor heads who just like talking about Survivor. And because I'm now 31 seasons deep, um, I'm something, I'm an expert would be not as highfalutin, but I'm something, I know the show, right? Like I, 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 I have watched the show for a year. I know the machinations of the game, all that stuff. So it's really fun to talk about something that I know a lot about with people who also feel strongly about it. And we're all doing it within the container of we love this thing called Survivor. But in a lot of these places like Twitter and Instagram, it's like, I have, for instance, going back to the Emma Stone, Glenn Close thing, there are Emma Stone heads, I don't know what her fandom is called, that come in and all they see is someone saying, here's someone that you, here, you're, you're putting Emma Stone up against someone and saying that that other someone is better. That's how they see it. Yep. And therefore, I'm shit and I suck. So I guess what I am trying to focus on moving forward is finding those survivor-like communities. And I'm not saying I'm just trying to find, uh, hang out with people like that, uh, that are just like me, that have the same, um, the same worldview. It's more about finding people with similar interests who don't necessarily share the same worldview, but that you have a common thing that sort of uh, keeps you together. In the case of like Megan McCain and myself, we both love The View. Again, so I guess I am just kind of thinking about the anxiety. I, I, I really, it's less, it doesn't cause me a lot of anxiety. I don't think that's the word, but there was just something about that Harry Chest tweet where I just was like, I don't know. I started to feel insane and I knew it was time to step back. So once the book goes into promotion mode, you know, things could change. But I think for now, I want to take a little bit of time to finish this book and to focus on, you know, moving to Brooklyn and, um, you know, just a, a life outside of Twitter. So with all of that said, Matt, anything else to add before we step off the mic for the last time this season? Um, no, I think you pretty much well summed it up. I mean, I think, I think this is wonderful, Evan. I think that learning how to, you're, you, you're exactly right. I talked about getting off Facebook, which was healthy for me. But even if I step back from Twitter, I still engage with it for promotion and other things. And like it's utilizing these things so they benefit you. That They're your right. social media. They're not, I mean, it belongs to Twitter too as well. But like Twitter is your tool. Use it how you see fit. And, you know, some people do that to their detriment and others don't. And I think you wanting to reanalyze Twitter and maybe other social medias and how they can best benefit you, this show and your work is perfectly respectable and understandable. And the part of it that I love the most, and, and some of you listening will know this, is like I love an Instagram voice memo. I love connecting with listeners of the show. It's how I form so many of these relationships with these celebrities. It's you're about to hear a celebrity call into uh, this episode with Zach and again that's Instagram voice memo there's so many aspects of it that I do like but I think I really appreciate the one-to-one -one connection most of all especially when someone is coming to check me about something and does it in a way that's like hey Evan I didn't like the way you said XYZ thing and here's why and I'm gonna DM you about it and we can have a real conversation because I think I think I don't think I'm a very defensive person when it comes to if I step in it. It's like even with the Emma Glenn thing, which my God, how many fucking times am I going to talk about this? But <laughs> it was one of those things where it's like, I hear that people saw misogyny in my post. I hear that people saw something different than what I was putting out. And so I'm always willing to, I was going to say entertain it, but that's kind of condescending. I'm always willing to consider the idea that someone is, is coming to me from a place that's actually like they feel a certain way about it and they're not coming with the intention of making me feel any kind of way, but rather, you know, to be heard. I like, let's summarize it this way. I like to, I like people to feel heard. That is very important to me. 
That's why I do my best not to cut people off um, in my question asking on the podcast. And, you know, there's been several interviews where we'll end by asking, do you feel good about this? I Sometimes we cut it out of the final edit, but it's just to say that it's like, if, and I say this too to guess, if you're not getting anything out of this, then like, what are we doing here, right? Absolutely. Like, yes, this is for my podcast, but it's also for you to feel like this was something different than just another podcast appearance. God, I just, I'm like running my mouth today, but you know, it's the season finale. So let me be. Anyway, I want to thank all of these listeners for being along on this journey. Yes. It's been so enjoyable. Matt, thank you. Ryan, thank you. Sean, thank you. Thank you to my boyfriend, Billy, for withstanding many, um, you need to leave the apartment for 20 minutes while I record this or helping me deal with the tech anything. I mean, my <laughs> God. Um, and we will be back in the fall with season three. I will have some news about the project with Sean very soon. The book will be coming out in March, 2022, but there will be updates coming out. And at some point, once I will figure out some way to reveal a very big interview, but I don't want to speak about it until it happens. But that, that will be exciting to share with the shut up heaven listeners. Um, and uh, with all that said, and wow, that was a mouthful. There was a lot there. It's almost like I spent all day in a, in a room talking to no one, which is what I did. Yeah. Um, but with all that said, uh, thank you again. Thank you all you listeners. And we are going to turn it over to an interview with an old and dear friend of mine who uh, I think you know, I think you love, I hope you love. I think you'll love, if you don't already love, you'll hopefully love him by the end of this. Uh, it is the great Zachary Quinto. Let's do it. He is a film and television star whose acting credits include playing the part of Spock in 2009's J.J. Abrams-directed Star Trek and reprising the role in 2013's Star Trek Into Darkness and 2016's Star Trek Beyond. Will he reprise the role once again? We'll find out. Other film credits include Margin Call, I Am Michael, Oliver Stone's Snowden, Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird, as well as Joe Mantello's Boys in the Band. His television credits include playing Siler on the hit series Heroes from 2006 to 2010. Prior to that, he appeared as a series regular on VH1's So Notorious and in a recurring role on the Fox series 24. Other TV credits include American Horror Story Murder House, American Horror Story Asylum, The Slap, Girls, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Big Mouth, and the upcoming Proud Family Revival series. His stage credits include the 2010 off-Broadway production of Angels in America, the 2013 Broadway revival of The Glass Menagerie, and the 2018 Tony Award-winning revival of Boys in the Band. He is a fellow Pittsburgher and all-around mensch, a man as smart as he is talented, and let's be honest, he is one of the sexiest men alive. He really is. He is kind, he is thoughtful, he is charming, he is wise. He uses words so big I had to look them up mid-interview. I'm not ashamed. He's also one of those really famous people who's more down-to-earth than I am. I think that's a compliment to him. Either way, I couldn't ask for a better season two finale guest. He is the great and magnificent Zachary Quinto. Zach, an honor, a pleasure, all the things. I have to start by asking the most pressing question to come from my research. You were gifted Tennessee Williams Coke Spoon during your run in the Glass Menagerie. So I first need to know that you still have it, and I need to know where you keep it. Absolutely still have it. It's one of my prized possessions. It's a swan shape, so it's like a little bird, gold, and then it has a turquoise gemstone 
on the back of it. And then you take the head and lift it off and the whole top half comes off. And then there's a little spoon, which is the tail, obviously. I keep it on display just on a shelf of ephemera in my apartment. That is, of the cool things that one can own, I don't think it gets much cooler than that. I have to agree. It wasn't even originally gifted to me directly. It was gifted to Cherry Jones, who played Amanda in that production of The Last Manager that I did, and then she bequeathed it to me. So I, I feel even more lucky because she saw fit to give it to me. And I, I do love it. I do love it. Well, I always say if, if you're going to be bequeathed a gift, let it be from Cherry Jones. If it's not from Cherry Jones, it should not be bequeathed is how I frankly. It shouldn't it. even be called a gift if it's not. Really? If it's not. You know? Truly, truly, truly. I want to start uh, by expressing my condolences on the death of your mother and oh. asking if you are comfortable sharing, what is one of the life lessons that your mother taught or instilled in you that you carry forward? Mm, thank you, by the way, I appreciate it. I think resilience is certainly one of them. My mom was someone who always faced the circumstances of life with a kind of unwavering determination and perseverance. And, and my favorite memory of my mother in general is her laugh. So I think the idea of humor and looking for humor and, and embracing humor as part of life's journey is also something that I, I look back on with a lot of fondness for those glimpses of when that happened. It didn't always happen, but when it did, it's, it's really the thing I love to remember the most. So yeah, I think those are the, the qualities and, and integrity. I mean, my mom really raised me to be considerate and, you know, like I still write thank you notes, right? Because nothing could happen in my childhood, in my family without my mom being like, did you write the note yet? So I think those kinds of things and that, that kind of conditioning, I really value and appreciate even this many years later. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mm, very well said. We share the great honor of coming from the 412, the 724 Pittsburgh. 412. Do you have it tattooed anywhere, the 412? I don't, but like, I could see that happening later in life for me. Maybe we do that together as a bonding post shut up Evan moment. 
I'm very down for that. And like one thing that has always really endeared me to you early on is how much you make talking about Pittsburgh part of of your your interview presence. I feel like I always really appreciate when an actor or actress or anyone sort of like shows love to their hometown, but especially for Pittsburgh. Um, Like when I see Joe Manganiello at a Steelers game, my heart (laughs) just like it begins to palpitate for multiple reasons, but particularly, you know, because I I love Joe Manganiello. He also, funny enough, he went to Mount Lebanon High School, which is where I went to high school. You, correct me if I'm wrong, Central Catholic? Correct. But I grew up in Green Tree, which is right next door to Mount Lebanon. That's so, so I knew Joe in high school. He was, we were, I mean, we we're right around the same. We were definitely in high school together. I don't know if we were in the same class or maybe he was a year or two above or below. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely knew him in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a, um, I love it. It's a great place to come from, you know? For me, it was always a place to come from and leave, but I love going back and yeah. Don't talk to Sienna Miller about Pittsburgh. Do you remember that whole scandal? Do I remember? That's one of those things that actually kind of stays with you and it's (laughs) taken me, it might still be an issue for me. It's taken me a long time to really come around from her, especially because like the flippant nature of the comet. For those that don't know, she was filming a film in Pittsburgh and notoriously called it Schittsburg, which is yeah. not funny, which not. is quite offensive. And also yeah. just in general, as an actor, if you are a guest in in a city, maybe don't do an interview in which you shit talk the mm-hmm. name of the city mm-hmm. or the, the people that live there. Just, you know, right. my, my advice. You know, I, I do just to say, I think she's wonderful and talented. And sometimes, you know, I, I I do think Pittsburgh can be misunderstood. It's got a, a a lineage of gritty kind of sooty remembrances to it that that stir up for people when they think about it. But but it's actually it, it's such a renaissance city and it's revitalized itself so many times over. And I really do feel grateful and proud to come from there. And I always love when I get to go back because it's also been great to see the city evolve and grow and emerge from you know, that past, that industrialized past, which in, in some ways does still define it. It's a little hard to shake that off. Yes. Just ask Sienna Miller. <laughs> and it has a very, very vibrant and thriving theater scene there. Mm-hmm. You famously are a Gene Kelly Award winner for Best famously. Supporting Actor. But I do want to talk about some of the food or some of the other things, just Pittsburgh-centric, really, really quick, just to see uh-huh. if you're familiar. So first, do, first of all, just tell me, do you have favorite haunts from Pittsburgh that you used to frequent or try and always go back to when you're there? Well, there was a bar that I used to love to go to called the Brillo Box, which I don't even know if it's still there anymore. I mean, you know, there's been such a disruption for everybody in the last year. I don't know. I don't know what remains in New York since I left the city, let alone in, in Pittsburgh. But the Brillo Box was a cool bar that I used to go to when I was in town and would meet up with friends there. I love a Mad Max moment. That's a restaurant, a popular Pittsburgh Mexican restaurant which is a good joint. I just love walking around the city now. And there's so much development along the water that, you know, I love going across the bridges. I, I usually stay downtown for convenience sake. So, you know, just, just going out and, and walking about is pretty great too. The, the Warhol Museum, it's first rate. It's a first rate museum. And the Carnegie Museum of both art and natural history are great museums. So I do love, I love being reminded of my childhood when I go home going to places that I used to go. Like I took an art class on Saturday mornings at the Carnegie Museum. And and when I go back, I, I went back the last time I was in Pittsburgh and just walking around and remembering the sensory perceptions of that little kid and how they've evolved and changed over the years. But the smells and the, the, the exhibits, some of which are still there. It's pretty impressive to me to be able to go back and see 
how things change and how we change and where the, the differences are. So yeah, I love going home. What about you? I love it. I mean, I particularly love, I mean, Minio's pizza is one of my like yeah, sure. must haves while home. Mm-hmm. But I, similarly to you, I kind of go back there and like nostalgia floods in. And then I'm just mm-hmm. always very interested to like keep up to date on like everything new that's happening there. So for instance, mm-hmm. it, what is the area, uh, not the strip district, pa- Lawrenceville. Past the strip district has become kind of like the hot spot. And like mm-hmm. when I was there, it was very undeveloped and so it's just interesting watching various areas take off. And I don't know. I love going back there. I feel like it's one of those cities that is – I feel like New York is very sectioned off in terms of mm-hmm. the different areas. And I feel like Pittsburgh is one of those places that's truly the melting pot in the sense of, like, the actual melting part of it in which people mm-hmm. sort of, like, coalesce with one another. Mm-hmm. And I always really like that about Pittsburgh. I agree. There's, yeah, I agree. I want to talk about some gay stuff. Okay. I'm curious. Do you remember the first time you have – either had an inkling or the realization that you were gay. And I'm talking like those early mm-hmm. days. I knew before it was reflected back at me that there was something different. I remember being in fourth grade, I switched schools between third and fourth grade. And so starting in this new school and having these experiences with a whole new group of kids was the first time that I was like, ooh, I like that seems appealing to me in a way that feels different that's when i really registered started to register what are you like nine in third fourth grade so i'd say about that time i didn't really i think i got i got i definitely got bullied a a fair amount through middle school and into high school but i never i never internalized the bullying as much as i learned how to work with it if that makes sense i don't know i learned how to navigate it rather than take it on but I think it traces back for me to that that school change and new people. And I remember I like got a girlfriend right away as part of the fourth grade social landscape when when we came back from summer break. But I remember feeling it I, even at the time I was like, this is a fraud. You know, I was like, this is not this is not what I'm about. But I didn't know what I was about. And it took me a long time to integrate my sexual identity. You know, I I'm I'm of a that generation before things really shifted, before that kind of integration was was encouraged and supported and welcomed from a much younger age. And so because of my religious upbringing, my social upbringing, and a lot of the aspects of what I was exposed to as a young person, I was uh, made to feel like different was wrong. And I internalized that eventually. That, that took time for me to get over. So, you know, it wasn't until college that I really started to drop into and recognize that this wasn't going to go away. I think I spent a lot of years thinking or wanting it to go away. Mm. I love that you mentioned that notion of, I didn't want to take that on. I was listening to this episode of Bitch Sesh recently, and June Diane Raphael was guest starring on it. And this was in more of a joking setting, but she talked about she came home one day and someone had crashed into her car and she just decided rather than to get really upset about it, she just decided to say, I'm not going to take that on right now. Mm-hmm. Go inside and continue on with her day. And I, I often think about the the just the notion of not taking something on if we not maybe some in some instances we don't have the capability or even the mental wherewithal at that present moment. Mm-hmm. But just to kind of say, I'm being otherized by these people and that's their problem. It's mm-hmm. not something that I am going to take on. I, I hope for more people to be able to not necessarily learn that, but maybe consider that that idea. 
I think bullying is so dangerous when it's internalized, when young people especially start to feel like they identify with how bullies portray them or make them feel, that's when it becomes really dangerous. And I was really fortunate for whatever reason in my personality, my my constitution, I just didn't I didn't allow it to be, you know, I didn't allow it to be a negative attachment in my own self-identity. Mm. Uh, I was sort of more, I remember I would write in my journal a lot about it, you know, and, and there was this kind of quality of like, I'll show them, you know, like, I'm, I'm not going to let this keep me down. And that, that actually led me to win the favor of people who bullied me over time. You know, I became much more popular through high school, especially I went to Eccentric Catholic as an all boys private Catholic high school. There was a lot of those challenges were reinforced for me there. You know, you'd think it would be a kind of young gay kid's delight to be in an all boys <laughs> Catholic sort of repressed environment. But it wasn't, in fact, it was, you know, sports were really important. But by the end of it, I was, you know, I had gained, I'd earned respect of people who, who entered into high school because that was another school change going to a new school. Um, and I'd earned the respect of some of those people who had started off the journey by trying to belittle or demean me. And uh, I'm grateful that I didn't let them. I want to talk about queer representation in film and television because, you know, perhaps we could call what we're going through right now a renaissance of sorts in the ubiquity of LGBTQ plus representation and in diverse LGBTQ representation. I look at these shows coming out today, like Sex Education and Euphoria, and they're just so exploratory of the notion that gender and sexuality are not finite. It's so ingrained in the DNA of so much of the media that's out there today. I know for me growing up, that wasn't the case. I imagine it was like that for you as well. Do you remember those early television or film roles or actors that you saw that really stirred something in you? There was really nothing growing up that made me feel seen or represented or portrayed in any way that, that gave me an optimistic view of what the path would be for my life as an actor, especially. I, I mean, there, there were really very, very few openly gay actors who, who weren't on some levels parodies of themselves. You know, I think we are going through a renaissance. I also think we're going through a reckoning. I mean, I think this time is a, a renaissance is certainly the graceful evolution of one mode of thinking into another, but a reckoning is a kind of, there's a force to a reckoning, right? Obviously. And I think that is something that we're really seeing now because it, it exists on so many different levels of marginalized identities where people aren't really waiting for permission. Mm. And I think that's particularly exciting in this time and something that we'll look back on and say, you know, we are living through something now that is entirely unprecedented in our social fabric and in, in our entertainment industry. And I think it's really necessary. I think it's really uh, exhilarating. And I think it's really challenging for everybody involved. I think it's challenging for people who feel they've been marginalized and alienated over time, whether that's because of their racial identity or uh, gender identity or sexual orientation. And, you know, they're feeling this new space of how do I step into this and in a structure that has historically been so designed to keep me out of it. And then for people who have been ensconced in that power structure and have benefited from that power structure, I include myself in that to a certain extent. Yes, I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community, but I'm also a white man. So how do we navigate the path forward, you know, in terms of white supremacy and its ever necessary cousin white fragility? How do we hold that space and explore it and take responsibility for it coming up on a year after the Black Lives Matter movement? 
I find myself really uh, asking myself those questions almost even more now that things have settled and, and we have a little more perspective. Mm. And I'm, I'm grateful to be able to do it. I think this is a, a, a really unprecedented time. And I think we're all going to look back on it and say, wow, we were really alive for something, right. something special. Yeah. And I'm also hopeful to your point that more cis white gay men kind of have a reckoning of sorts in realizing sort of the ways in which we exist in the world with a great amount of privilege, despite the fact that we might have grown up feeling marginalized when we very well may have been marginalized during parts of our lives. But within that marginalization, there is also a privilege and it can be both. Absolutely. Speaking of gay things, I have a question that was asked from a friend of yours. Oh, from a friend of mine. Hello, Zachary, darling dear. This is your friend, Charlie Carver, with a question for you. Um, we talk about a lot of things and I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but we've never gotten quite specific. I want you to share what you think you will be like as a very old man. And <laughs> tell me in all the ways you will be dignified and all of the ways you hope to be depraved. Wow. Charlie. Wow, I love that. <laughs> Did you prompt that question or did that come from his, from the the annals of his overactive intellect. Yes, uh, I prompted him a little bit, but I was given several different options of questions to use. And this Great. felt like both the yeah. best one and the most Charlie one. Oh, it's very Charlie, isn't it? Charlie's the oldest, youngest man I've ever met in my life. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> I love him. And, you know, I think as an old, I would say, we were talking about this the other day. Charlie just came up to visit me and we were hanging out. And one of the things that I'm really interested in doing, I haven't yet fully gotten there, but I'm, I may be considering like a real definitive move in this direction is a uniform. I mean, I pretty much only wear navy and black and gray, but I do have other, like I have pops of color and I'm constantly, but I would love to really establish just like I have 10 pairs of pants and there are maybe five different styles and I have two pairs of each of those and I just rotate through them in my wardrobe. I feel, and you know, Similar with, I don't know, I just feel like there is something as I get older about like, I, you know, this whole year for me in so many ways has been about divesting myself of the things that I used as measurements of my own sort of success externally. This whole year for me has been a real internal deep dive uh, for which I'm deeply grateful. And so I emerge from it with less concern or care for presentation and much more attention and openness to experience and expression, which I think is very different from presentation. And so a uniform feels like it could be a really good move in that direction. I've tried before and it is hard because I do love clothes and I love aesthetics and it's difficult to be like, I'm only going to commit to one thing and really commit to it. But maybe as I get older, I'll be able to embrace that. I love those like older guys that just wear like chinos and like painter coats and like you know glasses and their hair is salt and pepper like I could I could be on board with that for sure what else dignified you know and I, depraved. I and depraved right uh, I'll get there uh <laughs> dignified I I hope to do work and and make contributions that are meaningful on some level either on the individual level or the group level to our society and you know depravity is I don't know about depravity because so much of my life in the last few years has been about 
I used to be more depraved, much more depraved than I am now. And I feel like moving away from it, it, it just feels, it feels more right for me. It feels more, I, I, I look back on my days of depravity with a lot of fondness mostly. And, uh, and yet I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know. People tell me often lately, uh, I've had a couple of people tell me like, just make sure you're having fun. I think I'm having fun, but I would love to explore what that means. So I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to measure that in terms of like dignity versus depravity and get back to you on it. All right. We'll circle back. <laughs> I have a few more questions about gay stuff. Okay, great. We are approaching the 10 year anniversary of your public coming out this October. Mm. You came out during an interview in New York magazine when talking about your experience acting in angels in America. This didn't seem planned. These days, coming outs remain quite often, even recently, highly orchestrated affairs. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what your thoughts are, especially with the perspective of a decade in the public eye and a decade out of the closet, what your thoughts are on coming outs? Huh. I've always felt like coming outs are a very personal and individual experience that can only be shaped and determined by the person who is going through the experience themselves. I, You know, there's... There's a lot in our culture and our community of assertions of how things should be, or I think it has to be a, a personal journey. My coming out was only planned by me. I knew that I was going to do it, but I didn't tell anybody. I told no one in my personal or professional life. And that was really important for me to do it that way. I didn't wanna have the expectation or the pressure or even the knowledge of other people whose opinions I both value and could potentially be influenced by informing that experience. So I made the decision to go to this interview and refer to myself as a gay man twice in the interview, just in case you didn't get it the first time. <laughs> and that was how I did it. And then afterwards I told people that it was done. So it wasn't something I had to, you know, share the anticipation of with anybody. It was something I could anticipate myself and execute myself. And that was quite meaningful and, and impactful for me. But I think, yeah, I think, They've gotten more creative, I would say. They've gotten more frequent. I think that, you know, there, there's all kinds of things now to come out about, which is so exciting, you know? And people exploring different parts of themselves that they didn't even know existed before, let alone, you know, that they felt able to, to, to explore or express. So I, I think that's really amazing. And the, the, the wave of representation and integration that we're seeing as a result of that, I think will in, in many ways define our generation. Mm. I want to talk about your relationship with social media, because I think that this is connected to something we were speaking about earlier, which is the sort of this year of reckoning for you, for so many people out there, I would say, for our country holistically. We spoke, uh, I think it was the end of 2020, I want to say, and mm -hmm. you told me that you were going to be taking a break from social media. And I don't believe we've gotten any activity from you in 2021 <laughs> as of yet. I have to believe this is a conscious decision. Talk to me about what went into your mindset around why social media and perhaps something you spoke to earlier about this idea of like the affirmation, the need for affirmation, how that is all connected. Yeah, that's just it for me. I just reached a point at which my interest in keeping up with the pace at which everything evolves on social media, it was far outweighed by my desire for a more stable internal life. It just really, to me, it is, um, it's a portal to bad feelings. It's a portal to feelings of comparison, uh, inadequacy, obligation. 
and I danced that dance for a long time. And I just feel, you know, I'll be 44 in June. I've got better things to do with my time than tell this story about my life, which may or may not be entirely accurate or avail myself to the stories that other people are constantly crafting. I just got to a place where I, I really wasn't interested in it anymore. Why? What, what am I trying to prove? To whom am I trying to prove it? There's a kind of freedom that comes with stepping back. You know, I still have it, access to it. I haven't shut down my account or anything. And I go on, I download the app of Instagram probably once a month or once every couple of weeks to just, you know, because there are some people that reach out to me on there. I think that's how we originally connected. You know, there are things for which I see the value. But in terms of trying to keep up with, you know, my career and my followers and my quantification of my reach, like I'm not really interested in it. I think I'm at a place where I want to focus on my work and have my work speak for itself. I've earned the right in my own life to not have to do the whole kind of song and dance to keep up with what's out there. Because what's out there is not real, ultimately. Agreed. Are there yeah. any aspects about it that you miss? Yeah, I miss your posts, actually. <laughs> your posts are my favorite. They, they really do make me laugh out loud quite often. I mean, I don't know. I liked the certain visuals of like the design sites that I followed or, you know, but but no, I don't, I, I don't ever think about it. I don't ever feel like, oh, I've taken a break once before for eight months. And then I got back on, I think around January of last year, actually, right before the pandemic. And yeah, and so it was an experiment. It was like, let me get off of this. And I felt infinitely better. And then I felt lured back onto it for various reasons. And then over time, I started to feel the way I felt before I got off of it the first time. So I was like, okay, this feels like a cycle. This feels like, you know, there's certainly something that is insidious about it, I think, in our culture and our society. And, and, and it's great for some, for the people who thrive in that environment, who enjoy it, who make tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars from it. Good for them. That's just not the portal that I'm looking for. There seems to be something, though, about celebrity and social media, because we had Anna Ferris on the podcast several weeks ago who spoke Love. similarly about social media. And mm. then, not to humble brag, but I did, I interviewed Katy Perry yesterday, and mm. a lot of our interview was centered around her, she's had a similar journey to you as sort of not being as active on social media at all because of the toxicity. And I think particularly when you are a celebrity and you have people so invested in you and in your lives and creating their own idea of your life, mm -hmm. I think that the pressures are more that someone like me can kind of enjoy it more frivolously than someone like celebrity. But this seems to just be a thread through a lot of the celebs I've been talking to. Speaking of celebs, mm. I spoke to our friend Sarah Paulson ahead of today's episode, and I asked her what question I would be criminal not to ask you. And she <laughs> she responded, hmm, I mean, I had to breastfeed him. So there's that. Um, can you recount that experience in detail, please? Uh, in detail. Yeah, we were doing the second season of American Horror Story. And the way that that show is written, it evolves as it's happening. So it wasn't like we read the whole season and knew exactly where it was going. And the lines between our characters got closer and closer and then intersected at a certain point. And then our storyline just kept getting more and more sort of depraved. As depraved, I was, from, yes, from yes. Earlier. And the culmination of that was, yeah, she had to breastfeed me. 
And just the idea, I mean, Sarah's one of my dearest friends and we've been friends for a very long time and, and we're thrilled for the opportunity to work with each other. But I just remember that day, you know, this, the headspace that I had to be in playing this psychotic, psychopathic killer and holding her hostage and manipulating her and this sort of mommy fantasy and her playing along with it. I mean, it was just such a weird thing to like between takes, like there was a lot of laughter on that set and there had to be because it was so dark. But I just remember that day being like, I can't, I have to be over here, like getting into my like breastfeeding headspace. And then yeah, suckle at the teat of one of my dearest friends. It was a, I haven't had a day like that at work probably since then, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Well, Here's hoping for one in the, the near future. Let's talk about some of your work. You had done a bunch of guest spots on series ranging from Touched by an Angel to Lizzie McGuire to Six Feet Under to Charmed. Actually, before I ask my question, which of those early guest spots was the most memorable for you? I would say Six Feet Under because I loved the show so much and I felt really honored to get that job. I mean, it I think it ended, it was supposed to, maybe it was going to be a recurring role. I remember it was also a pivotal moment for me in my career trajectory because I was still waiting tables when I got that job. But I was at that place where I had done enough, but not had that one opportunity that was going to really make a, a significant difference for me. So when I got that job on Six Feet Under, and it was meant to be, a, they called them possible recurrings, but because the character went to school with Claire and could have maybe come back around I was like, okay, I'm going to quit waiting tables. So I used that job to quit waiting tables and then it didn't recur. So it kind of put me in that position to have to, you know, that was a moment of real, of real decision for me. Like, am I gonna, am I going to fall back on something again? Or am I going to lean into my belief that I can do something here if I just keep my nose to the grindstone, which is ultimately what I did. So that was a that was a memorable one for those reasons. And I think we're all glad you made that decision. So then in 2006, So Notorious comes along. Uh, yes, it does. For those of you that don't know, and you should know, it was a VH1 series starring Tori Spelling. In a very generous way, it could be seen as a successor to the comeback. Uh -huh. First of all, <laughs> I love that your resume a includes- A predecessor to the comeback. Or predecessor. Yeah, Wait, yeah. isn't it comeback? 2005. Oh shit, it? no, you're right, you're right. The first season of the comeback was 2004 or three. 2005, and then So Notorious was, was 2006. I, yeah, I don't mean to correct you, but. <laughs> if anybody's gonna know, it is you. So you're right, okay, so a successor to the comeback. Great. And I really, I love that your career includes The Glass Menagerie and So Notorious. I think that that is important. <laughs> That's range. When I told people I was interviewing you, this credit came up a lot, like a uh -huh. lot, a lot. And I have a theory as to why, but I'm uh -huh. curious if you encounter a lot of this and have any theories of your own. Huh. Well, I'm interested in your theory. It does come up for me. It's it's a real cult. You know, it's a real thing that if they know it, they know it. Just for some context, it was a pilot that was originally for NBC. NBC didn't pick it up. And then VH1 came in and, and it was like their first, I think maybe one of their first scripted shows. It did have a quality of being, you know, I consider the comeback very ahead of its time. One of my favorite shows ever made. And it did have a quality of being a little bit ahead of itself, you know? I've definitely seen on shows that came after So Notorious sort of like devices and nods to humor and comedy in that in that writing. Mike Chesler and Chris Albergini created and wrote that show and, and are really, really 
talented, hilarious writers. And there was something about seeing Tori, who I, you know, didn't know personally in any way before I did that job and only had an experience of what, you know, our industry presented about her or I, I got to tell you, getting to know her and getting to work with her was one of the most delightful surprises of my career. She's so lovely. I haven't spoken to her in many, many years, but she's such a lovely person and so talented and such a talented comedian. And I think that seeing her do that while making fun of herself was something that people really appreciated. And it was well-written. It was funny, you know, Lonnie Anderson and Tori. And yeah, it was just really... Um, Joe Manganiello makes an appearance on that show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good time. I mean, you know, we only did 10 episodes and then, and then they didn't pick it up. And I don't know what would have happened if it had continued. There was a kind of, for me, creatively a ceiling to that experience, just in terms of the character I was playing, her sassy gay best friend called Sesson, who's based on her real life best friend at the time. And so I don't know how much I would have been able to really mine from that journey had it gone on multiple seasons, but I'm certainly grateful for the time that I spent there and, and for the opportunity to do comedy, which I, you know, I don't get to do as much and would love to do more. Yeah, I mean, I think about that series, you know, you were talking about this this vantage point that people, this idea that they had of Tori Spelling, and then she comes along and shows people that she has the capability of laughing at herself. It reminds me, I always come back to Louise's line from Gypsy, in which she says, nobody laughs at me, mama, because I laugh at me first. And I, huh. I really think that that attitude in the case of So Notorious and for others out there, it really can endear people to a person so much to learn that people's ideas of a person, they're in on it, they understand it, and they know how to harness it. So yeah. respect to Tori Spelling. Absolutely. So then you do Heroes, a uh -huh. huge cult hit at the time. And, and this is way before the big boom of the superhero genre in television and film. And I'm curious what it was like being a part of that show and especially getting to play a villain. Mm. That was such a heady time because Heroes really that amplified my exposure in ways that I had never really considered up to that point. You know, to that point, I just wanted to really work and be able to provide for myself and make a living as an actor. And then this show comes along, which was, yeah, at the time it was this kind of, I, I think it's become a cult hit, but at the time it was more of a mainstream kind of juggernaut. And because it had such an international bend to it and there were characters from all around the world and, I, you know, it really... It was one of the last big sort of bastions of network, international network television. I mean, there still are, you know, other ones, but I think the scale and scope has shrunk over the years a little bit. And that one was significant. And so it was great fun, I, but I was, I was still, I think I was learning a lot as it was happening, you know, cause it was so big, but great people on that show too. I've always been really lucky with the people that I've worked with, like really thoughtful. I remember, my first day on set was a night shoot and I showed up and, you know, I didn't know what the experience was going to become. That character was originally only supposed to be around for like eight episodes or something. And, and I ended up being on for the remainder of the series, but I remember showing up and they were, they were shooting a scene between Milo Ventimiglia and Hayden Panettiere. And I was sort of waiting for them to finish. So I was watching and it was my first introduction. And I just, I will never forget Milo was so welcoming. And, and I, was, I was really overwhelmed. I was nervous to have to start work and to kind of step into this thing. Because the other thing was my character wasn't introduced until midway through the first season. So they had already been shooting for months. And 
then I came in and there was just such a sense of respect and welcoming, especially from Milo, who, you know, I still am in touch with and who I just love and think he really carries that, that integrity with him wherever he goes. But it was really that that was true of everybody, mostly on that show. And my experience was great. I just love doing that. It was fun. And the villainy part of it was great, too. Although a little bit of a shadow that I've had to work to get out from under, I will say. Mm. I, too, love Milo. I know you have not been on social lately, but Milo's thighs have become very popular on the gram <laughs> and are uh, a lovely sight. Oh. So then you have your first film role. Some start with a featured role in an indie flick. Others play Spock in the 11th film in the Star Trek franchise. I'm sure you've been asked every question about this film, so I'm going to try for one that you haven't. Okay. I am writing this book about Buffy right now, and one right. of the through lines from actors has been how on a show like this, the fans aren't saying, oh my God, I loved you on Buffy. Can I get your autograph? They're saying, Buffy saved my life and mm -hmm. your performance gave me the fortitude to get through some of the darkest times. Mm. And I imagine it's a similar fandom in the world of Star Trek because typically I imagine more often than not, you're dealing with diehard fans. Mm -hmm. People who their entire lives have invested themselves in this franchise that you are now a part of, that you have been indoctrinated into. It's a deeper level of fandom than I imagine you encountered prior. So what has it been like for you getting used to that, I was gonna say level of fandom, but rather maybe that type of fandom? Yeah, that intensity of it. And the heroes Star Trek combo is, it was a real sort of, it's a real poo-poo platter of fandom. I definitely stepped into something that was so much bigger than either of the individual projects that I was working on and bigger than my contribution to those projects. And so it was a powerful experience, but I've always, from, a, from the very beginning when I could see it sort of brewing on the horizon, I always made a decision that I didn't want to, I didn't want to surrender any sense of myself to that thing, to that sort of almost institution of fandom, right? And so I, I tried, and, and I think I've done a pretty good job now you know, the first Star Trek movie came out in 2009. So over a decade later, I feel like I've been able to create a life for myself that is, it's reflective of the life I want to live. I don't feel like I'm beholden to anybody or anybody, anything else outside of myself, which is great. But I think it's just been about gratitude and respect. I'm grateful to be a part of something that has influenced people so significantly over the years. And I respect their commitment to that project and in the case of star trek to that franchise to that world to those characters to the mythology and many of those people i would say know a lot more about it than i do and so i've learned as well over the years from them and um and i and i always enjoy the encounters that i have and and i know how to protect myself as well so for me it's just been about i think the the gratitude of being a part of something that's been so influential in our pop culture that's something a lot of the buffy actors have said to me as well because that show is 25 years old and they said more often than not a fan will come up and be like i love this scene and this episode and they will have no memory of it whatsoever and will have to sort of allow the fan to know more about the thing than the actual person who sure. lived has a lived experience because again like i think a lot of fans out there don't always recognize that the actors are not in the same degree invested in it right. that they are. They are invested right. in a different kind of way, yeah. but it's like, I think a fan often wants to have a shared experience that just cannot be had because of the distance that an actor has from their work because right. they are human beings. Right. I'm gonna turn it over to Matt who has a question for you. All right, hey Matt. Hi, so continuing with the Star Trek 
of it all. You're considered at this point to be sci-fi royalty as one of only a few actors who have gotten to portray one of the most important characters in science fiction history, Spock. What has it been like to be part of this incredible legacy? Mm. Well, by a mile, the most valuable thing that I took away from that experience uh, was my relationship with Leonard Nimoy, who originated the role. And I never could have anticipated how close we would become, but his presence in my life and our friendship was so significant to me that no matter what happens for me creatively, professionally, I think that will, will always remain one of the most significant outgrowths of a job is that friendship, right? Like yeah. he, he was such an incredible man and to get to know him and to see how he navigated that path because he had it more intensely than I did, of course, because yeah. he stepped into that role at a time when, you know, people only had three television channels to choose from and 35 million people watched every episode of Star Trek that he was in, you know, it's, it's insane. And Spock is his version of Spock, I mean, the character of Spock, but it is really ultimately synonymous with him is one of the three most recognizable figures in our civilization, not just in our country or in our industry, or, you know, it's Jesus, Mickey Mouse, and Spock are the three (laughs) most recognizable cultural icons of our civilization. So I feel like that's a lot of pressure to carry and to see how he carried it and navigated his life with such integrity and curiosity up to the very end. He had such a, a passion for life. He was a poet and a, a filmmaker and a philanthropist and an art collector and a writer of all, you know, he just, he, a photographer, amazing photographer. He just never stopped. And that to me was the thing that is most significant. And, and cl- close second to that is the friendships from my cast and, and, our, and our crew of people that are still very, very, very close. And uh, yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, maybe we'll get to do it again. We'll see. Well, on that note, Untitled mm. Star Trek sequel 2023 is listed on your IMDb. Is it? Work. Yeah. Anything you can say about that? Uh, um, <laughs> no, I have no idea what's going on. When did, was that? Is that a new? I mean, I don't know. There's been so many, you know, Quentin Tarantino is going to write and direct the next Star Trek movie. And then there was one that, you know, Chris Hemsworth was going to be in. And then, I mean... There's so many versions of what could or couldn't happen out there. There's no way to really tell if if, or when anything might actually come back around. But I do know I would love to do it again. I think we all would. So it would be great, but no, no plans imminently. Okay, and speaking of Hollywood Chris's, you mentioned Chris Hemsworth, which is a subject I'm always down to talk about. But I do want to talk <laughs> briefly about Chris Pine, who's oh, yeah. my favorite Hollywood Chris. You know, you've worked with the man. I'm just curious, is Chris Pine as nice as I dream him to be? Yeah, for sure. He's like a brother to me. And uh, yeah, again, you know, Chris just has that really a core of integrity that I think is, um, is a through line with the people that I really gravitate toward in my work life. They're the people that I, I, I seek out friendships with. And Chris and I knew each other before we did the Trek film. So, you know, we have a lot of overlapping mutual friends and a, a circle of like really close friends that are very important to me and and he is certainly among them but uh yeah endlessly curious and and generous of spirit and heart and yeah a really a really great guy 
I want to talk about franchises that that many are hopeful to see you return to. You did American Horror Story Murder House, and then you mm-hmm. did Asylum, as we mentioned. We got the breastfeeding in earlier. You've worked with the great Ryan Murphy once again, but I'm just curious: has there been any talk of you rejoining the AHS universe in any any if you know form? Um, not no. I mean, there no, no. <laughs> yes, the short answer is no. Got it. I want to just mention some of your other work. I don't have time to ask specific questions, but I just can't go without mentioning it. Love the slap. It is very, Mm. very, very important to me. I also want to shout out your performance in The Glass Menagerie, for which I feel you were robbed of a Best Actor Tony nomination. I want to mention I Am Michael. I want to mention Girls. I want Mm. to mention Big Mouth. And then most recently, Boys in the Band. I think your Mm. performance in that film is criminally underrated. It is so finely calibrated. So I want to encourage anyone listening to seek out these films and girls the television series just a couple last topics great you are about to celebrate five years of sobriety so mazel on that mm. what has sobriety brought you that you didn't know that it could oh wow a deep understanding of the power of surrender i think often surrender comes with this uh, often right behind surrender or right around surrender is fear and i think a lot of that fear centers around the idea that if i let go i will lose control or uh, i will lose power and quite the opposite for me my journey in sobriety has has really taught me that actually it is in the surrender that the power exists and the freedom exists because control is a a kind of atrophy. The need for control is a kind of uh, rigidity. Mm. And what comes with surrender is a kind of expansion and a kind of freedom that that I never knew when I was so afraid of what it looked like. Well said. Mm. I wanna ask you about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I know we have offlined about this before, um, but I wanna bring it to the pod. (laughs) Tell me where in lies your proximity to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Have you seen the show? I think it's about uh, uh, my proximity to it, as close as you are to it, I'm that far away. Like I I never, I know, I'm really sorry, because I I admire your, uh, and I'm so excited for you to be working on this book and what a great way for you to parlay something that was so influential in your childhood into your professional life and your creative expression. And, but it just, it never grabbed me. I was, I was too, I think when Buffy was at its peak, I was too concerned with my own career. And I you know, that was around the time that I was like finishing school and moving to LA. And so I just wasn't really, I never, I never auditioned for it. I never did it. I never, I never had anything to do with it. And it wasn't one of the shows that I, that I gravitated towards, I'm sorry to say. You don't have to apologize, but I do think that there is always time, and I Uh am hopeful that one day you will find Buffy and and find the greatness that is Sarah Michelle Gellar as an actress. It's important. Speaking of that, how pop culture literate would you say you are? It's tough to say. Do you have a quiz that would prove my pop culture literacy? Not not handy in front of me, but like, okay, so my my sense is that you are a book reader. Is that that a correct Mm -hmm. assumption? When I can, I mean, because I also have a production company and and the vast use of my time during the pandemic has been developing things. And so I'm, I'm often reading stuff for work scripts and notes and things. And so I do love a great book, like the last book I read called Shuggy Bane, 
which I cannot recommend highly enough. It's so beautifully written, so good. I believe the author is Douglas Stewart, I want to say. One of my favorite reads in probably, you know, years. So yes, I, I do like a book. You have this production company, as you mentioned, and I think that that is one of the, it's extraordinary. It's really a cool thing that you are developing new content. What made you want to start the company? And are there certain stories that you're trying to prioritize telling or, or, or what made you say, I want to have this kind of control over the storytelling that I, I'm putting out there? Yeah, I started the company in 2008. Uh, it was right on the heels. I'd finished the first Trek movie. It hadn't yet come out. And I felt like I wanted to have a hand in some of the narratives that I was a part of, both as an actor and just as a producer. And we started focusing on film. The first film that I produced was called Margin Call, which I also was in. And that was a movie that dealt with the 2008 financial crisis. So yeah, it was a, it was an opportunity for me to contribute narratives that I thought were interesting and relevant. So things that have some kind of social resonance that don't take an audience for granted, that maybe will generate a, a dialogue or a discourse among audiences that reflects their kind of perspective on society. And, you know, and then, and then that's changed and evolved. I'm focusing a lot more on television now. You know, I have a fair amount of LGBTQ plus narratives and then other things that I'm interested in. So I, I just think there has to be some kind of, on some level, a kind of social re relevance. That's something that's interesting to me, for sure. Mm. Okay, so my last question, I want to touch briefly on queer media, the state of queer media. My sense has been, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a reticence from a lot of Hollywood actors to of queer media in general because of a feeling that perhaps the stories don't often get told with the right amount of nuance. I think, for instance, I know you had an experience where you spoke in an interview years back about prep, and that created a whole sort of, like, blunder. And kind I imagine... Of. Kind yeah. of. And if I were you, that would have given me pause in terms of saying, you know what, I don't necessarily perhaps feel like these outlets are are here for me. I get that sense from just seeing how few LGBTQ plus actors give their exclusives to an out or an advocate versus a variety or a Hollywood reporter. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm outside of the industry, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the state of queer media and yeah, just in general. I think you're very, you're very industry adjacent. I wouldn't say you're outside of the industry. I would say you're, you know, you know, that's so interesting. You bring that up. Yeah. I gave an interview. I think I was doing the cover of out 100 and they asked me about prep and I was very, by the way, which I take every day now, you know, I was very soapboxy about it at the time. I didn't know very much. It was very early days. And I think that some of my assessments were out of a kind of uninformed probably fear on some levels and, and a weird projected judgment as well. And I've, I've certainly come to educate myself on the issue significantly since then. But I don't know if I could specify this fact down to queer media, but media in general right now is, it's a very slippery slope to make public comments about anything in this culture, in this day and age. I think it, you, you, know, you have to really be informed and you have to really, really believe in what you're saying. And I think you have to have something additive. I, I don't think there's any value or point in injecting yourself into a conversation unless you have a reason to be in that conversation. As far as queer media goes, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge media consumer. Cable news, I, I find really loathsome. 
I don't really, you know, on both sides, you know, I think MSNBC is every bit as responsible for the divisiveness of our country as Fox News, you know, uh, and, and I think it's, it's a sad state of affairs and media in general right now because it's all so corporatized and fueled by revenues and ad sales and, and, and these echo chambers that we create for ourselves. I'm much more interested in, in, in exploring ways in which to diminish the rigidity of those echo chambers and soften our, our, our posturing against one another. Mm-hmm. And that goes for queer media and mainstream media and, and all media, uh, you know, but it's, it seems like a daunting prospect, which may be part of the reason why I'm like, I'm out of social media because that's just another place where we reinforce our limited and rigid beliefs and perspectives because we follow the people that agree with us. And, you know, we, we tweet, we retweet and, and, you know, that whole, I don't know, it's just, I'd rather be over here enjoying my life and trying to make a difference in the way that I can. I think the way that things get condensed so often is one of the aspects I find troubling. So for instance, like your vulture, the New York, uh, New York, New York times, the New Yorker, the New York post. No. Who is the coming out? The New York Magazine. The New York, New York Magazine. Mag- yeah, somewhere in there. The New York <laughs> Magazine coming out was a great example of you came out in that article and that article is about so much more than you're coming out. But right. then 20 outlets will aggregate that story uh-huh. and do the Zachary Quinto just came out as gay. Right. And so right. basically they're taking what is nuanced and kind of just congesting it down and saying, here's the part that you should know. And I think that is what gives a lot of celebrities and just people in general, a timidness about wanting to have complex conversations because of a fear of it being condensed and made to be very small when some things are nuanced. Reductive. It's so true. And, you know, in that example that you gave, I also released at the same time, the day that article came out, I also released a statement that I had written myself because of that very reason. You know, I wanted to make sure that there was context and my own voice in that conversation as it was being picked up and aggregated by all those other places. I wanted to make sure that even if they didn't use it, I had contributed to, you know, my aspect of the conversation. And this just happened. I saw this recently after Prince Philip's death and the funeral. And I just saw this, you know, I was scrolling through one day on on my news feed and it was like, you know, queen wipes away tear after husband of 73 years is laid to rest or something, you know? And, and I was like, oh, and I clicked on this thing and, and, it, and it was picked up by a number of different people. And it was like this long shot photograph of the queen in the back of her car. And, and it really seemed like she was moving her mask. Like, how do we know what she did? There was no, but the, but the way that it was reported was as unequivocal news. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the problem. We, we live in a time when you know, and, and this this former administration did nothing except fuel this mistrust and this this audacity to uh, report as news things that are entirely speculative. And so I do think there is a kind of timidity and a kind of, you know, some people go one way, which is let's lean into it and get messy with it and like see what it, it, it's going to be. And then there's people who maybe are like me who are just like, ah, that's not my game. It's not my game. It's not, I'm not interested. And I think there's a lot more to the experience of life than these fabricated and ultimately kind of artificial outlets that we create for ourselves and for each other. And I think more and more people are starting to see it that way. You're saying you see it in, in the through lines of the interviews you're doing. I certainly see it in, in my friends and in, in people around me. 
just taking a step back and realizing that we've created these structures that we don't necessarily know what to do with anymore. And they're kind of, they're kind of taking on a life of their own. And that's a little bit daunting. And just as easily as we have created them, just as easily as we can disassemble them, right? If we put in the work to do so, hopefully, maybe, you don't look so sure. <laughs> I don't know, because I do think there's something about these younger generations whose brains are actually being wired by technology that, you know, that this kind of interaction that we have with devices and the reliance that we have on these devices has, has evolved past our ability to have real control and that's what's a little bit scary to me is that how do we it's like putting the toothpaste back in the tube i don't know i don't know how you do that i don't know when a, when a society and a culture becomes so built on a foundation of voyeuristic expression presentation of life then i don't know how you back that up but i would love it if we could we should we should keep talking about how I agree. I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to thank you for wearing this gold chain. I think it is a very <laughs> great look on you. And I just I want to thank you for your thoughtfulness and introspection, your great body of work, and all of the good that you do in this world. You're just a real mensch. That's sweet. I appreciate it. Right back at you. Thanks for your humor and social commentary and you know your insights into all this stuff I think are interesting and valuable. I'm happy to be a part of it. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. <laughs> Shut Up, Evan is produced by Matt Storm with associate production by Ryan Killian Krauss and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters without whom none of this would be possible. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.